to see a man who was physically dead raised to life and over 500 witnesses saw him, that in and of itself is astounding. But that resurrection is a guarantee of something more astounding to come. And 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 to 28 tells us. Now, we have been studying things about the second coming of Christ. And as we pivot this day to talk about the resurrection, I want you to see that the resurrection in and of itself is connected to the coming of the Lord. It's connected to the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul will show us that here in this passage. So what is it that is guaranteed to us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to look at this morning. So just two guarantees are made to us here that we find in this passage. That's what we want to look at. Two guarantees made by the resurrection of Jesus that actually secures our eternal future. So the resurrection is not just something to think about in the past. It is a guarantee of something more monumental to come in the future. And we're going to unpack this a bit this morning. So what are these guarantees that the resurrection of Jesus makes that secures our eternal future? Let's think of them together. First, the first guarantee that the resurrection of Jesus makes to us is our future resurrection. This this is fundamental to us. The resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago is the guarantee of our resurrection. Now, there, we talk about guarantees in life, right? There's certain things guaranteed, death and, well, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. So death may be coming. We will all face it. There's no one here that gets to escape it unless the Lord returns and calls us to himself So we're going to face that, but the resurrection of Jesus actually guarantees our future resurrection. If we were to study this whole passage, we would see that the verses that precede verse 20 are actually verses that sound a little bit discouraging, almost hopeless, because Paul anticipates. Now, if you don't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, or if in fact Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, what are the consequences of that? Well, back in verse 12... He anticipates that some are actually saying that, that there is no such thing as physical resurrection from the dead. And Paul says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain. And we, the apostles, have been found to be false witnesses. You can't believe anything that they've said if Jesus isn't actually raised from the dead. In verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins, meaning there is no forgiveness of sins if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead. Not only that, those who have died, those who died hoping in Christ, they've perished. There's no hope. Those verses sound like a downer, don't they? Those verses sound hopeless. And let me just say, life is hopeless if Christ is dead. But what are the first words of verse 20? But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. 
Meaning the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an actual key to the gospel. It's not the whole of the gospel, but it is the ribbon and the bow that wraps the whole package of the gospel together. And God the Father is the one who accomplished this resurrection of Jesus. It's actually phrased that way in the original Greek, that Christ has been raised, someone outside himself, namely God the Father, raised him, which speaks to the fact that Jesus physically died. He died in his humanity. His humanity perished and God the Father breathed physical life back into him. He was raised from the dead. I want you to think about that carefully. He did not just spiritually, he didn't just physically swoon. He, he, he didn't just spiritually pass away. This is not a fairy tale with some kind of moral message to it. He was raised from physical death. That is astounding. Why is that important for us? Well, notice the text carefully. Now Christ has been raised from the dead. And what does Paul call him in his resurrection? He calls him the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits of those who are asleep. The phrase describing those who have died in Christ, those who are asleep, it's not talking about the soul that sleeps. You might hear that in some religions that when you die, the, the soul sleeps as the body sleeps also. No, this isn't a reference to the soul sleeping. Uh, for example, Paul in Philippians 1 that Dalton was praying through, Paul understood if he lost his life now, he would be immediately spiritually in the presence of the Lord. The soul doesn't sleep. This concept of falling asleep has nothing to do with the soul. The soul never perishes, not for the believer, but the body does. But for the Christian, death, physical death, is only viewed as sleep. And when you talk about someone sleeping, you're anticipating them coming awake. If you're sleeping, it's temporary. So you anticipate someone coming awake. So this is a reference to those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, those who have died believing in God, their physical bodies are merely sleeping. It's a good analogy, a good way to think about death. But notice this says Christ and his resurrection is the first fruits for those who have died or have fallen asleep. What does that mean? What are the first fruits? Does this mean that Jesus Christ was the first person to ever be raised from the dead? No. The Bible speaks of quite a few people who were raised from the dead well before Jesus was. Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings 17. Elisha the prophet raised the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4. A dead man thrown into Elisha's grave touched his bones and was resurrected from the dead, 2 Kings 13. Jesus himself raised a dead man who was being carried out of the city to be buried, Luke 7. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days, John 11. Saints who had been long buried were resurrected from the dead at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Matthew 27. 
many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, the text says. So this is not a statement. The first fruits is not a statement that Jesus is the first person to ever be raised from the dead. So what does it mean? Well, well, listen, Jesus wasn't the first to ever be raised from the dead, but there's something categorically different about the resurrection of Jesus and any other person who actually was raised from the dead. Think about that. Every person who preceded Jesus who was raised from the dead, guess what they got to do again? Aren't you glad you, it wasn't you? I mean, they had to die again. They died again. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he would never again in his humanity ever experience death. It had been completely conquered in him. So what does this word first fruits mean? Well, it's an Old Testament term. It actually comes from the book of Leviticus, that book that you study so deeply every year, right? full of all the sacrificial system and, and you walk through all that bloody mess and you think, oh, what is the point of that? Why is it so costly? Because sin is so costly, that's why. But in Leviticus chapter 23, you will find a description of what is referred to as the, the feast of first fruits. It was like an Old Testament Thanksgiving day, although it has a lot more purpose to it, a lot more uh, priority priority to it than what we might think of as Thanksgiving Day here. It came during the harvest time. And when the Israelites would begin to harvest the first of their harvest, they would bring a portion of it, <clears throat> the first part of it, to a priest. And the priest would take some of that first portion and begin to wave it in front of God in gratitude for what God had given in the harvest. But not just in gratitude. They would wave it in front of God, thanking him that he had provided, but also anticipating that God would provide more. That this first part of the harvest was just the sign that something more and larger and more widespread would come. And that's the idea. The first fruits is a perfect picture of the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection from the dead was like an offering of praise to God, dedication to God that anticipates by faith that there will be more resurrections like his to come. That's why Paul indicates here that Christ is alive and he in his resurrection is the first fruits like a thanksgiving offering that anticipates even more. But that's not where Paul stops here. He goes on to provide a theological rationale for why the resurrection of Jesus is a hopeful, forward-looking anticipation of more resurrections like his to come. Notice verse 21. It begins with this explanation. For, because since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. What's emphasized here? Physical death came to all humanity because of one human being's sin. So we should also understand that through another human being will come the resurrection of human bodies. Verse 22 explains exactly what he means by that in case you, you were wondering, who, who's he talking about? Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ all will be made alive. What is he talking about here? As in Adam all die. If we were to dive into unpack some of the Greek phrasing, it's very important here. It actually emphasizes here that everyone who is connected in reference to Adam, it's what we call in Greek the dative of reference, Everyone who is connected in reference to Adam. In other words, everyone who comes from the same family tree in connection to Adam, die. You know what he's referring to there, don't you? The promise in Genesis chapter 2 given to Adam. He was told if he would eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. If he was to eat of the tree seeking autonomy from God to be his own standard of right and wrong, he would die. And if you keep reading in Genesis, you come to Genesis chapter 5 and you see it repeated eight times in the chapter, and he died. It's as if the promise came to fruition. He died. Humanity began to die. It was not intended for humanity to die in the beginning, but to live to the glory of God. But they transgressed God's law and they physically began to die so everyone in the family tree of Adam will die and who is that just look around the room every one of us we're all in that family tree we're all connected in reference to Adam we're going to die But the hope comes in the next phrase. If that was true of this human being who plunged all humanity into spiritual death and physical death, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now some stop there and say, does that mean everyone? So since everyone is plunged into spiritual ruin, And condemnation because of the sin of Adam, does that mean that everyone in all humanity, again, the the Greek is helpful here, it's again the dative of reference. All who are in reference to Christ, all who are in the family tree of connection to Jesus Christ, they will be made alive. So it doesn't refer to every single human being here. Every single human being is connected to Adam, but only those who actually have true saving faith are actually connected in reference to Jesus Christ, and only they then will be raised from the dead. So not all humanity, just believing humanity. We will be made alive just as the Father breathed life into the physical body of Jesus, raising him from the dead. So the Father himself will actually raise our bodies from the dead. I think that needs to be a radical transformation in our thinking about our physical bodies and death. You know what we don't need to do as Christians? We don't need to promote the idea that the physical body is of no eternal concern to God. If God is going to raise the physical body, what does he think of the physical body? 
When he created humanity and made them physically and he personally formed and fashioned them, what do you think God thinks of the physical body? If he's going to raise it from the dead so it lives forever, what do you think he thinks of the physical body? We tend to see a casket at a Christian funeral as a moment of mourning or just mere memories. For Christians, we need to change our thinking there. I understand. There is sting. There is pain. There is loss. We feel that. And sometimes we try to ease the sting and the pain by telling ourselves, well, that's not really them. They're in another place. And we oftentimes talk about just leaving this world and being in heaven someday. That's just a very small part of the eternal picture. Do you realize that? The eternal picture is not us just dwelling in the clouds, plucking harps and doing nothing. It's us being actually raised from the dead under the rule of Jesus Christ over the whole earth and living under his rule with each other in completion and perfection forever. He's going to raise us from the dead. If we believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then a casket is a sign of sleep. And sleep always means it's temporary. Awakening is coming. Do you ever see the glory <clears throat> of the fact that Jesus has been bodily raised from the dead? It is the guarantee of our own future physical resurrection from the dead. That's a pretty profound thought. You know Christ you will physically live forever even if you die. That's exactly what Jesus said to Martha in John 11. Even if you die, you will live because of the resurrection. That's the first guarantee. There's a second guarantee that we find in this passage. And it really is profound because it has less to do with us and more to do with God Secondly, Christ's, res Christ's resurrection guarantees God's eternal supremacy. Christ's resurrection guarantees God's eternal supremacy. I think if you, you spent a little bit of time and just daydreamed about the fact that you will live forever physically, that is stunning to think about. The personal ramifications of that. The way we think of our life now in terms of what will come. But, but let me remind us all of something. Resurrection is not all about us. It's also about God. How? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is what guarantees the complete consummation of all of the earth in the pure glory of God's supremacy in and through all things for all eternity. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, watch Paul unfold this for us in four different ordered steps that bring about the ultimate supremacy of God in all things. Now, right now, you might not think that God is supreme. 
And right now, it may not feel to you as if God is supreme over all things. When he raises us from the dead, you're going to see how supreme he really is. And Jesus' resurrection guarantees this. So how? Watch these ordered steps. First, God's supremacy is established in Christ's resurrection. Now watch, we're going to go in a certain order. God's supremacy is established in Christ's resurrection. Look at the first part of verse 23. So he says in verse 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ also, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Meaning God has an ordered plan of how he's going to display his glory and his supremacy and he will do it in a very detailed, ordered manner that actually highlights his power and displays his glory. The word order here is a military metaphor describing position or it describes a sequence of order. Think of something like a battle plan. And how the the regiments of the army will go in a particular order into battle for reasons that the generals understand. This is how God is thinking through it. There's a divine order. There's a divine game plan, a battle plan. So that God will show himself supreme and completely annihilate his enemies, death, sin, and all of the effects of death and sin and put on display God's perfect splendor. And it begins with Christ's own resurrection. He establishes it in that, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Christ is first. And then he anticipates more to come. He's the first fruits. That leads to the second part. The second step in this ordered plan of establishing God's supremacy because of the resurrection of Jesus. The second step in guaranteeing that supremacy in the latter part of verse 23, God's supremacy is displayed through our future resurrection. So first Christ and after that those who are Christ and I want you to see this last phrase at the end of verse 23, at his coming. After that, after the resurrection of Christ, the next step in the ordered plan of God to establish his supremacy is our resurrection that comes at his coming. Quite a bit of time has passed, hasn't it? Since that first step of God's ordering his supremacy through the resurrection of Jesus, 2,000 years and counting, And this second step does not occur until the specific events surrounding what's referred to here as the coming of Christ. Now the word coming is a word that we we have studied before and we're studying in detail. It's the Greek term parousia and it can be used in a number of places as a technical term to refer to all of the various events that actually are connected to the return of Jesus Christ. And it's not just one event the coming of Christ is not just one event there's a series of events there's an evaluation of believers before the father 
There's God's judgment of all of the nations. There's the catching away of the saints to meet the Lord in the air. There's a time of great tribulation and God's wrath poured out on the earth. There's the time of Christ's actual reign on the earth and overcoming the Antichrist and all the rulers and authorities in the universe and the judgment of all the unbelieving people and the recreation of the heavens and the earth. There's not just one event at the coming of Christ, there's many. It's as if the coming refers to an era of events that bring about and usher in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And one of the events that is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ is the resurrection of those who belong to him at his coming. Now in my reading of the New Testament, there are two different resurrections of believers that will take place. There is a general resurrection of all who have died and all who remain alive when Christ begins the events of the parousia, his coming. It's recorded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We studied that not that long ago. There will also be a resurrection of those believers who were killed during the period of what is known as the Great Tribulation. Revelation 20 describes this resurrection of those who were martyred during that period of the great tribulation and they are raised to life. It's not a spiritual resurrection, but a very physical resurrection for a specific group of saints who then began to rule with him on the earth. Now what's interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul doesn't get into all the timing issues regarding when all of this resurrection will take place in relation to all the other events that will take place, but he does, he does focus on who. Who will be raised? Again, look at verse 23. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Christ's resurrection has occurred. That's the first step, which leads us to a second step in God's establishing his supremacy over all things. And it's every person who belongs to Christ when he begins the events that usher in his ultimate return. Do you see why it is necessary for you to believe the gospel now? When will that happen? We're told to expect that the coming of Christ could happen immediately, at any moment. This is why, dear friend, if you are not believing in Christ, if you're not trusting him, if you're not walking with him, listen, when he begins to usher in the coming of the Lord, when he begins all of these events that will follow, will you be those who are caught up to meet him in the air? Will you be those who are resurrected to be with him? That's the next step. There is a third step in the order of how Christ's resurrection guarantees God's eternal supremacy. It's found in verses 24 to 27. The third step is this. God's supremacy is applied in Christ's future reign. God's supremacy is applied in Christ's future reign. So Christ is first, then after that, those who are in Christ when the coming of Christ begins, then notice verse 24, then comes the end. Then comes the end. The end of what? 
the end of all opposition to Christ. Even, we could say, even the end of the ages comes. I think the words used here suggest a strategic progression. Christ is resurrection. Christ comes. And when he comes, the saints are resurrected. Then the end comes. But this is kind of like one of those proverbial infomercials that we see. But wait, there's more. You think, well, that's the end? Oh, but wait, there's more to this. Let me tell you what the more is. How does the end come? Notice the phrasing. When is the end going to actually come? When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. That's when the end comes, when Christ has reigned to such a degree that he hands the kingdom over to God who is Father over all. That's how we know that the end has actually occurred. It's not when the saints are resurrected. That's not when the end is. It's the saints are resurrected. Christ then must take the kingdom that he's reigned over and hand it to the Father. But wait, there's more. When is he going to hand over the kingdom to God who is the Father? When is he going to do that? Well, the text goes on. It says, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now that is staggering. He'll hand the kingdom to the Father only after he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Now what does that phrase refer to? Well, it can refer to spiritual rulers and spiritual authorities and spiritual powers that we cannot see that exist in the heavenly places like the demonic world, the angelic world. The reality is Christ has always had supremacy over all of those authorities and powers. Colossians 1.16 says he created thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. In Colossians 2.10 it says he is head over all of those powers. In fact, the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension proclaimed his authority over those demonic powers. That's what Ephesians 1.20 says. God brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above, listen to this, he's far above rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Colossians 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he did that through his death and his resurrection. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So there is a sense in which he is reigning over all of these authorities and powers even now because of his resurrection. In fact, the book of Ephesians gives us another note. Did you realize that we actually have power to overcome those authorities and powers now? Ephesians 6, you remember verse 12? This is a verse you've probably heard many times. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You know that passage? Who do we struggle with right now? It looks like it's a battle between you and your spouse, but it's more than that. It looks like you and your kids can't get it together. It's way more than that. It looks like you and your boss are at odds and there's, 
there's disaster looming. No, it's, it's way more than that. Our struggle is not merely against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there is a battle going on. There's real opposition, and you feel it, and you see it, and over those forces, Jesus actually has power now. You say, well, if he does, then what in the world is he waiting for? Why, why all of this? Because he has not applied that resurrection authority to those kingdoms and those powers in the most completed sense. In fact, the phrase rulers and authorities, that can be the spiritual world, that could also refer to rulers on this earth physically. Titus chapter 3 verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities and powers. So it can be spiritual, it can be earthly. Now, go again to verse 24 just to look at this for a moment. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has done what to all rule and authority? Abolished it. Abolished it. Destroyed it. When he brings those authorities to nothing, when he renders them inoperative, when he nullifies them, when he brings their power to nothing, when he removes their activity of ruling and exercising their authority and demonstrating their power, that is when he hands the kingdom to God. That is when the end comes. And has that happened yet? It obviously hasn't. We're still anticipating a time when all opposition to Christ ceases. And we know this hasn't happened yet because notice verse 26. What's the last enemy and power and authority that has to be overcome and nullified and destroyed and abolished? What is it? Death. We've had funerals here recently. Death hasn't been abolished. So the kingdom has not come yet. And he has not yet taken the kingdom in his earthly rule and abolished it all so that he can hand it to the Father. In fact, you see verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now I know that some say this is a reference to Psalm 110 verse 1 and it is. It's the the prophecy essentially, when it, and it says there, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And several passages of scripture indicate that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God following his resurrection and his ascension, suggesting that the reign of Christ being spoken of here has already begun. But that doesn't seem to be the fullest picture of what is stated here in this passage. When we talk about the reign of Christ, we need to understand it in a couple of ways. We need to understand different facets of the reign of Christ. You do understand Jesus has always been reigning, right? You, you do understand there has never been a day 
Not one day, not one moment, not one millisecond when the authority and power and reign of God and Jesus Christ has been dormant. And under that reign, he has allowed opposition to him to exist. The reign spoken of here is not speaking about that aspect to his reign. This anticipates a time when no opposition exists. The second facet we need to understand about the reign of Christ is that the resurrection did not begin the reign of Christ. It simply announced and anticipated the fuller expression of his reign to come. He does sit on his throne now. Rulers and authorities and powers continue to operate and exist under his authority, even though Christ is over them all, but he has pronounced his ultimate victory over them through his resurrection. In fact, we refer to this as his positional reign, not his completed reign. The writer of Hebrews even states this very explicitly. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says, One has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's a quotation, again, of the Old Testament. And then the writer of Hebrews says this about that Old Testament quotation. For in subjecting all things to him, God left nothing that is not subject to him, meaning... This is a quotation from Psalm 8. Christ is the fullest manifestation of humanity who will reign over all things and he will be given reign. But the writer of Hebrews says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Even though he has authority over them, they have not all been subjected to him. So this reign that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 is not a reference to the positional reign of Christ. It's a reference to the completed reign of Christ. Friends, there is coming a reign of Jesus Christ on the earth that will be comprised of his complete dominance over every nation, every enemy, until, the text says, until they are eradicated, destroyed, When will this reign of Christ that subdues all these authorities and powers be completed? How will you know it's done? The last enemy, death, verse 26, is abolished. That's when it's finished. That's when the end comes. The reign described here, part of the events of his coming and continues until the final enemy death is eradicated. That's what's referred to here. In fact... This sounds very, very much like what you will see in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. In Revelation 19, you'll see in verse 11, Christ will return. He'll begin to subject all the nations to himself. In Revelation 20, Satan is then bound after he re Christ returns for a thousand years. And the text says Christ then begins to reign in verse 7 of Revelation 20, it describes the final defeat of Satan and the nations after the thousand years of Christ reigning with the saints. In chapter 20, verse 11, 
after Satan is defeated following the thousand-year reign of Christ, then comes the final judgment. And even death, according to Revelation 20, even death then is done away with. It fits the same order as we see here. Death is the final enemy to be rendered inoperative. That's physical death is completely eradicated. Now look at verse 27 carefully for just a moment. It's a clarification. He again quotes, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. He again quotes from Psalm 110. As he quotes that, Paul wants us to understand, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, that is God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. You say, who's doing the subjecting? Who's the one? Is it Jesus? Is it the Father? The answer is yes. Yes. God, Christ, the authority of God being applied. This is really fascinating. Christ is going to reign on the earth. He's going to put everything under his feet, even death itself. And when that happens, he will take the kingdom that he's reigning over in complete dominance and hand it to the Father. What guarantees that that will happen? The fact that Jesus is now raised from the dead. If you believe that, it guarantees that God's eternal supremacy is going to be applied through the rule of Christ to come. That should expand your appreciation of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why it's so foundational to our faith. But there's one final step that we see here that the resurrection of Jesus brings about and guarantees the supremacy of God in and through all things. Last, God's supremacy is secured in Christ's future submission. God's supremacy is secured in Christ's future submission. You see, what do you mean Christ's future submission? Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. The son will subject himself to the Father. Functionally, not in essence. They're one in essence, in function. They have different roles. But why? Why will the Son do that? He tells you why. So that. Never pass over the so that's in the Bible quickly. Linger on them. Dwell on them so that God may be all in all. What does that mean? It means God's complete, unopposed supremacy will no longer be anticipated. It will be eternally celebrated. It will be experienced 
God's glory will be abundantly enjoyed and expressed and experienced to its fullest degree. When God is all in all, we will live on the earth and everything that we experience will have him at the center point unhindered by any sin, unhindered by any distraction, unhindered by any selfishness. Can you imagine what that will be like? We will think back on what we know of human history and we will be more amazed at the wisdom of God because he's now seen to be all in all. The questions that we had so often in this life will no longer be questions. They'll be seen as complete and perfected and we will be in awe of the wisdom of God. We will see more of how merciful God was when he's all in all. We'll see more and appreciate perfectly how gracious he was to us for so long when he is all in all. There'll never be another voice in your head or outside of you that calls you to question God. You'll never wonder if you love him. You'll never wonder if you love him enough. You'll never question God's purposes again because you'll see everything is summed up in him. It's very much like it was on the very last day of creation when God stood back and he looked at the creation and he didn't say it was good. What did he say? It's very good. Complete. It was at rest. I long for that day. Sin is wearying. It's brutal. Not just the sin outside of us. The, the sin inside of me is wearying. And it's brutal. And you wonder... You feel like you make some progress and then you wonder if you've made any progress at all. This is so difficult. And then you start seeing what's going on in the rest of the world around you and you think, this looks hopeless. But what did he give you? So that you look back and say, no, a day is coming when God will be all in all and it's not hopeless. What did he give you that guarantees that? The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is actually tied to the return of Jesus, isn't it? It's the first fruits that says there's more to come. Something more astounding than his own resurrection is coming. So you don't, you don't need, Christian, to be ashamed to talk about the resurrection to modern people who cannot fathom that. You don't need to be ashamed of it. Jesus is alive and that guarantees your resurrection. That guarantees a future resurrection of all humanity and there is a resurrection to come even for those who do not believe yet it will not be to life but an eternal conscious condemnation. Don't be ashamed of the resurrection. Don't back away from it. Don't act like it's one of these things, like it's just a secret we talk about on Sundays so that we don't get made fun of. Friends, we, we don't just think that he 
is alive on Resurrection Sunday. Again, every Lord's Day we meet, we are celebrating and anticipating his return because he is alive. We should be comforted. We should be confident. We should have an abiding joy. That doesn't mean that we're just going to skip along life and there's no sadness right now and we just are happy all the day. No. But when we're sad and the sting of death comes and the disappointment of sin remains, we remind ourselves of what is termed in the Bible as hope. And so in sadness, we become steady, not chaotic. Let the world be chaotic. Let the world be in chaos as, we, as we're steady, trusting. Christ is the first fruits of bringing God's supremacy to completion. If you're not a Christian, we'd plead with you. Today's the day of salvation. This is the time. This is the era of which you can call upon the name of God. You can call upon the name of Jesus Christ and he will save you from your sin. And you will participate in eternal glory with him and he will give you a purpose now. I pray that when we think about the resurrection, we don't just think about something in the past, but it calls.